When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Y'all, today I am so excited to share my interview with Akweke Amizi and They were just so much fun to talk to. We got into so many different things and I feel like this interview went in so many directions that I am so pleased with. Talking to them was truly just so much fun and I'm so grateful for the experience. I really hope you enjoy this conversation and I won't take up too much of your time before I let you get into past Joe and Akweke talking all about their new book. Before I let you go, though, I do want to mention, of course, you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, all at ProBookNerds. You can visit our website, ProfessionalBookNerds.com. And of course, if you'd like to email us, let us know what you thought about an episode or provide your comments, your feedback, your suggestions. If there is a topic you want to hear in the future, you can send us an email professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Please make sure you are subscribed to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, And then make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We'd love to see those reviews. All right, without any further delay, let's go in to my interview with Akweke Amizi. On today's episode, I wanted to introduce you to a multidisciplinary artist and writer. Their practice is deeply rooted in the metaphysics of Black spirit, using the lens of Indigenous ontologies to focus on embodiment, ritual, and rememory. They are a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, named one of the New Hollywood Guard writers by Vanity Fair, and you may have heard of some of their other titles like Bitter, Pet, The Death Vivic, OG, Content Warning Everything, and Dear Centurion. Their debut romance title, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty, is expected on May 24th from Atria Books. It's a Quake AM Easy. A Quake welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here today. I am so excited to talk about this beautiful book you've written. Likewise. It's one of my favorites. I mean, the the first thing, Emma and I uh, were always the ones guilty of bringing it up, but the cover, the cover is stunning. I can't say enough about, like, I've I've left this on my coffee table and every time a friend comes over, they're like, what is that? Because, you know, lucky enough to get, <laughs> to get an advanced reader over here, but they're like, um, I'm going to need to borrow that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. And the cover is doing its job. Absolutely. And I noticed there were two different versions online. Did you have anything to do with with these like wor- true works of art? I'm usually pretty involved in, in my covers. I tend mm-hmm. to warn editors about this, like <laughs> as soon as they acquire any book. I've done it like ever since my first book, Freshwater. 
where I'm like, look, I'm going to be a pain in your ass about this cover. And I just need you to know now so that in, you know, in 12 months when we're doing this, we're all ready. But in this case, you know, this was actually the first draft that the that they sent over. I mean, we made like little tweaks. We changed um, her makeup. Mm-hmm. We put the the hummingbird on the cover. It was a butterfly before. So we made little changes like that. But overall, just the colors, the tropical feel, and the fact that they were able to fit such a long title on the I... cover in a way that doesn't feel crowded. I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm happy with this. I was like, this feels you know, like a romance cover. And the other cover is the UK edition um, from Faber Books. That that makes total sense. But absolutely, you said it best with the fact that they could fit such a title on here and it it's not crowded. It looks like it flows. I feel like, a, like it, it almost feels like a love note. Like that's what gives it the uh, the kind of romance feeling the moment you look at it. Because I just imagine waking up and, you know, whoever has just scrawled on a piece of paper and left for me, you know, that kind of message. And it's just, ooh, it's beautiful. Oh, that's such a good point. I'd never thought of it that way, but absolutely. Like it's that little handwritten feel. Exactly. The vibes are right. <laughs> <laughs> So speaking of the title, I, I guess we always try to start the same. Would you tell our listeners just a little bit about You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty? Sure. So this is my first romance novel. Um, it was really fun to write. And that was my goal was to write a book that, you know, was light um, mm-hmm. and that had a soft place to land at the end. That's why I love romances. You know, you get the happily ever after as one of the requirements for the genre. And I also wanted to write a book that was messy, you know? Mm -hmm. So this book is about Faye, who's in her late twenties. She's living in Brooklyn. She was married young. She lost her husband in a car accident and she's trying to get back into the scene. Her best friend is supporting her in this quest to like feel alive again. Um, In the process, she starts, you know, kind of talking to this guy who flies her out to a tropical island where she promptly falls for his dad, who's a Michelin star chef and, you know, shenanigans ensue. (laughs) Absolutely shenanigans ensue. And I, so of, of the three of us co-hosts, it's, I am like the, the lover of a romance novel, but I could by no way compare to Emma and Jill in their love for romance, but you (laughs) hit all of my favorite, like what makes me go, yes, this is a romance I need to check out. Uh, It's that it is quickly paced, you know, I, I mean, like in the first just handful of chapters, they're already getting ready to hop on the plane. And I'm like, okay, good. Where uh, I'm, I'm not going to wait too long before I'm in the thick of it, and I, I think the the pacing is beautiful, but also several several wonderful things you said to kind of draw from both on that kind of forbidden love, the one you shouldn't fall in love with being there, but also you know being in New York City and just this cast of characters you built, which I I really find that or I really believe that the city is a character itself or that your locations are characters. Do you feel that mm-hmm. way? Absolutely. I think it's such a, it's such an influence on the story. There's a certain 
spirit to it that mm -hmm. is so particular to the locations. You know, the book takes place between Brooklyn and a Caribbean island, which is fictional, and I just never got around to naming it. Um, but I think in in both of those places, you can see so much of the location as a character. You can see the way the vibe of Brooklyn. It's you know, it's in the people. It's in how they move around. There's something intangible and yet so loud about places. Absolutely, and it also feels like the characterization of both of your settings matches Faye at the different points in her life or kind of where she's at as the story progresses. Like, I'm, I'm sorry to do this to you, but I'm going to quote yourself to you. Um, Go for it. <laughs> uh, so this is actually right from the beginning. She's describing New York. No one in New York cared about the vintage of the sadness tucked behind her eyes and in the small corners of her smiles. She didn't have to drive and she could cry on the train and no one would look no one would care because she didn't matter. And it was honestly such a relief to stop mattering. And I mean, I, I got chills just reading that out loud because the, that is the energy that I see with New York City. And it mm -hmm. also is what your character needs at that point. Like this is, that's what was facilitating her healing. But then when we when we get to our unnamed island you know the energy is different because she's blossoming much like the the flora on the island yes very much you know i think new york has that sort of gentle anonymity mm -hmm. that people mistake for coldness mm -hmm. or callousness but it's really that it's just it's such a packed city that people are just giving you privacy. Absolutely. Um, you know, you can, and I think it's like, you know, the thing where you can see celebrities eating and like New Yorkers <laughs> are not going to bother them. It's just, right. it's courtesy, it's consideration. And, and in that case, it's what Faye needs is to be surrounded yet mm -hmm. given space. Now, Faye is an artist, and part of what she has built for herself, aside from purchasing this brownstone, is also some art space. It, you yourself are also an artist, aside from just the written word, you also craft, I mean, truly, clearly from my description, I've been to your website, you have beautiful <laughs> images on there from your different projects. How long have you been creating? Ooh, that is a... That is an excellent question. So with, with stories, I've been writing since I could write. Like I started okay. writing little books when I was five years old. Yeah. Um, they were children's books, which is very apt because, you know, <laughs> I was a child. Sure. And I think the first book was about a helicopter who was friends with like an airplane and a submarine. They were illustrated oh. books as well. It was very intense. And then there was a period where I was just plagiarizing Nancy Drew for a long time. <laughs> That's um, fair. <laughs> and I switched over to poetry in my teen years. Um, mm -hmm. But then again, my teen years were also spent in college. Like I started college when oh. I was 16 and finished when I was 19. Oh, um, wow. So I was a kid throughout college and I started taking painting classes around then. Um, I moved to Brooklyn after dropping out of veterinary school and I was in a grad school at NYU and I was painting some more then and I really thought I was going to kind of 
pursue painting more. Um, sometimes I wish I had mm -hmm. because it was, I really loved it. Um, and I was obviously like a little baby painter, but I think I could have gotten, I think I could have gotten really good at it. Um, I suppose it's never too late technically, but right. I was making visual art around then. Um, and then I started, well, I continued writing, mm -hmm. but I had friends in Brooklyn who had told me that I was good enough to write professionally because it had never occurred to me. I'd been doing it my sure. entire life. And I had a professor in undergrad who I took a romanticism class with him um, and wrote a paper and he pulled me aside and he said, you need to change your major to creative writing. Oh, and wow. I was maybe 17 or 18 at the time. Um, and I very politely explained to him that that was impossible <laughs> because I was a pre-vet major and I was right. also incapable of defying my parents to change my major <laughs> to creative writing. Um, and now I look back and I'm like, oh, wow, he was right. <laughs> you know, he was absolutely right. Um, so I started writing professionally. I started pursuing the idea of this professional career in 2013. Um, okay. And I was making video art as well. So I was kind of doing both side by side. The reason why I stopped making video arts and kind of focused on books mm -hmm. was because people kept stealing my work. So oh. I would make video art. I would, you know, post it on Vimeo. I mm -hmm. would have people screen the work at festivals without my permission and charge people entry. So people were making money off my work Except because it was you. like publicly accessible. Um, right. I had, you know, there was an Italian filmmaker who had seen my work, had talked to one of my friends about how much she liked it and then plagiarized a shot from my film in her film and then went on to screen at like tons of film festivals. And it was so exhausting because every time that happened, I had to go on social media and kind of like rally and call out to these people. And I was a little nobody then. So no mm -hmm. one cared. You know, the film festivals accused me of, you know, trying to bully them online because I was asking them to hold, you know, a plagiarist accountable. accountable. Right. Yeah. And so I, I stopped. I was like, you know what? You guys don't get my video art anymore because I can't protect it. I don't have the money for a lawyer. And the fun mm -hmm. thing about books is that you can't do that. <laughs> exactly. The publisher will come after you. So it's, it was just the more protected IP. Um, and I focused on that. And now that the books are... Now that the books are established, I've been making video art throughout. I just haven't been, you know, sharing it or showing it. And now that the books are established, I'm really looking forward to being able to um, kind of show more or get more into my visual art. Although it's, it's a little hard because I think everyone has it so fixed in their minds that, you know, I write books and that's it. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I write books. I make video art. I make visual art. I... I do interior design. I do a lot of things. You are truly one of the people that when I look at your presence online, I have no problem just saying, this is a creative. You know, usually when people kind of take that term online, th they don't want to own up that they do one thing, but you are truly mm -hmm. a person who creates across the board. I mean, even from the beginning when you were saying, telling your publishers, I'm going to be a pain. I will be very specific on what this cover looks like. <laughs> Art is still present. And uh, mm -hmm. I'm so excited to see you kind of embrace all elements. Uh, and clearly, I mean, clearly you're doing something right. Aside from your books, 
This book isn't even out yet. And can we just talk for a moment about how Amazon Studios has already purchased the screen rights? Like, oh, yes, that was that was super exciting. Um, I really wanted it to be on screen. I feel like it's such mm-hmm. a it's such a, you know, screen worthy. Yes. Um, story. And honestly, every time I write, you know, there was this thing online where they were like, you know, do you have an internal monologue mm-hmm. or do you not? And I'm one of the people who does not have an internal monologue Whoa. whatsoever. <laughs> I do not understand how people do that. There is no voice in my head talking. It's always just images. So I see everything in images first. And that's how I write books is that they play in my head like (sighs) movies. Like a movie. And so I, and that's how I, that's why all my books are so heavy on like these um, really like sensory, yeah, the imagery and these really sensory descriptions because I'm trying to capture a movie in my head and put it on the page. So every time I do that, I'm really excited to reverse the order and yeah. put it back into image because it was actually image first. That is that is so amazing. Instead of having an internal monologue, you have an internal storyboard. Like yes, <laughs> I I appreciate exactly. I appreciate that. I am one of the people who does have an internal monologue, and it was it was like world breaking when I learned that that wasn't everyone. <laughs> But I, I really love the idea that you are you are seeing things as as film before they're happening, basically. I've made it a point to kind of work on each of my adaptations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm executive producing the film adaptation of Pool of Death. And for me, it's I think it's helpful that I, you know, worked in in film before. I used to think I was going to be a director um, but then I realized that narrative film was a lot of work and there are many things that I've learned and this is something my parents were frustrated with when I went when I was a child because they were like you if you applied yourself <laughs> you could do so many things and I was like yes but there's so many things I can do without applying myself and relatable it's relaxing <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> and so there are things where I look at it and I'm just like okay I could do this but do I want to spend <laughs> you know the time and energy that it really takes to become good at this thing mm-hmm. and directing film was one of those things where I was like I could do this but I'm tired. So <laughs> I'm just going to write, if I want to do narrative things, I'm just going to write books mm-hmm. um, and somebody else can do the directing. Yes. And that's how I ended up in, in video art because I was like, I don't want it to be narrative. I want it to be more flexible. I want mm-hmm. to be able, it's like poetry, but an image where like, it's not narrative, but it's still so evocative. And I think working in film beforehand has prepped me to, you know, like EP projects because I'm not attached to preserving the book at all. I know it's a, it's a concern for a lot of like film TV people when you have the author come on board Mm -hmm. because they're always worried that the author is going to be inflexible and they're going to be like, no, it has to be true to the book. And I don't feel like that at all because I'm like, if you want the version that is just me, that's what the book is there for then right. just read that like that's the version I don't need the book to exist twice it already exists once in the yeah. form that it's supposed to if it's going to exist in another form then part of the beauty of that other form 
is the like transmutation that occurs when you move the story from one medium to another. Um, and that I find has been very helpful in me not primping the style of like the teams that are working on the adaptations and being like, oh, by all means, do what you want. I already did my version. I'm fine. So they love you on set. They're like, okay, cool. We've got them <laughs> to give us a solid, what do you think this should look like moment? But you're not sitting there like, uh, no, no, that's not what I wrote. It's also a, a really fascinating approach because you're already kind of translating. Like you described, you're going from images to words and back to images. So it's it, it has to be a, a lot more flexible than than most people tend to try to preserve their work. Yeah, and you know, I think of it as similar to translations. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of my books have been translated, Freshwater and Rebecca, I think are translated into about like 13 languages each. And these are collaborations. You know, the translated right. version of the book is not the version I wrote. I will never be able to read it because I don't speak any of those languages that it's been translated into. But it's a collaboration with the translator and it's passing through somebody else's artistic filter and the end result is going to be something different, still beautiful, still scaffolded, scaffolded on my own work, right. but different. And I think, you know, screen adaptations are the same way. I hadn't ever thought of that. Um... What is, if I can ask, what is the process like to work with a translator? Are you as involved or do the publishers kind of um, let their translator take the guide? Do you ever get questions as far as does this make more sense or does that make more sense from the person doing the translation? I do get questions. It depends okay. on the translator. Sometimes I'll get translators who, you know, they want to have a discussion about things, especially mm -hmm. with freshwater which sure. has so many, you know, like abstract metaphysical components and they're trying to figure it out how to translate it into their languages, um, their words that, you know, don't exist in some languages. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the translators usually ask a bunch of questions. I don't always answer them to like okay. the extent because, <laughs> because I'm like, use your judgment, like use your discretion. You know, like, you know, the people you're writing for or the people you're translating for, you know, you know, all these cultural like nuances that I'm not aware of. And, and also, I learned early on that it was futile to get too involved in translations, because quite honestly, I will never know how it turned out. Like someone could have misrepresented my work and I will never know so there really didn't seem to be a point in micromanaging it when I wouldn't be able to check the final result I was like I might as well just save my energy and you know godspeed to them <laughs> that is such a refreshing take to it as well like yeah cool I'm glad it exists for the people who need this in other languages but that, that's not me so I'll never know <laughs> Have you already started production on on death with um, not only Amazon Studios but Michael B. Jordan's Outlier Society? I'm I'm all sorts of fawning. I cannot wait to see. Like you've already killed my brain with the images in the book. I cannot wait to see it on screen. Have have things started rolling on the the recording end yet or casting? Or... No, no, we're still in <laughs> development. And there's, there's one thing I've learned about film and television is, you know, I thought there wasn't an industry that was slower than publishing, <laughs> and I was wrong. You found it. <laughs> 
I found it. You know, I, I was like, oh my goodness, publishing, you know, you write a book and then you don't see the book until what, 18 to 24 months afterwards. Mm-hmm. And there's so many stages. And then I got into film and TV and I was like, never mind. <laughs> I was like, I take back all my objections to publishing. <laughs> this is a decent time frame for things to happen. Um, with film TV, I just kind of let it, I let the rest of the team do what they're doing. I'm like, I will be tagged in, you know, when it's, when it's my turn, but it's so, it's so slow. And I think um, I have a new appreciation for, you know, projects when they finally do come out because now I'm like, Oh, I know how long it took you (laughs) to make this happen, especially for, you know, black creators. I'm like, Oh, you know, props to you. And I hope you make all the money off it because you deserve it. Clearly the work is there. You're still in early development for Freshwater as a show on FX as well. Um, so I guess you're not wrong. It, it really is. <laughs> it is a slow <laughs> beast just working its way down. It is a slow beast, but you know, the book is coming out. So I'm like, I'm glad that there's, you know, there's enough time for people to meet the book before mm-hmm. they get to see the movie. And something to kind of tide you over, give you some energy to feed off of their responses and let people truly fall in love. So when, you know, Valentine's Day season rolls around in a year or two, everyone can be so excited. Although this is a book I want for like this time of year. This is like warm me up as we're heading into, I'm in Cleveland, so it's still cold as all get out here. (laughs) My condolences. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so this this was a treat to be like, yes, tropics, warmth, give me that, like, head into summer energy. Yeah, it's very much a beach read. <laughs> Without a doubt. Oh, I could, you're right, beach read for sure. Uh, last one I'll ask you on the, on the movie end, was it a trip to have this happen without the book even being released yet? To have the rights purchased and things already just kind of start, even at the, the spark? Um, you know, it sold much faster than than anticipated. But to be mm-hmm. fair, it was also my first time really selling in this kind of context. Okay. With Freshwater, it was TV and film work very differently. Um, sure. And with with this film, when when everything just kind of kicked off, it went to auction, which is, you know, kind of similar to selling books, but exciting mm-hmm. because there's much more money involved. Um, and and I think it it sold right before, right before my memoir came out mm-hmm. last year. So it was, yeah, a little heady, I think, to think that, you know, the film rights are already taken care of, the book's not even out. And, and it's weird because, you know, I've spent... I spent most of my career doing literary fiction mm-hmm. and YA. Um, and this is my first foray into commercial fiction. Sure. And a lot of people say that in, you know, like it's a bad thing. Like, oh, you're, ugh, commercial. Mm-hmm. I adore commercial fiction. I'm just like, this is, this is what I read. You know, like, <laughs> yes. I live off fantasy novels and romance novels because I have no interest in being in like I have very little interest in being in the actual world we live in let alone being in a make-believe world that is a replica of the actual world we live in I'm like why would I do this twice I already have to live in it I would like to live somewhere else that's better or has you know the possibility of a happy ending like give me the delusions Mm -hmm. because they're so much better you know than this reality um and it's been 
I think the momentum around this book is larger than it's been for my books before. And, and it's also a function of the fact that, you know, it's romance, it's the film right sold so quickly. Um, it's also a little further along in my career. So my sure. name is more familiar to readers, like all these little factors kind of add up together. But um, I'm in some ways I'm nervous about the book coming out just because I feel like it's, it's opening a door to a whole, a whole, a whole new world, as one might say musically. <laughs> um, and, and it was meant to just be like, you know, this one little fun book. And now my brain is like, here are two sequels. And I'm like, no, I have too many books on my list. Stop trying to come up with sequels. And then all the readers are like, we want Please come up with story. sequels. <laughs> yeah. Like we want joy story. And I'm like, mm-hmm. stop enabling my book writing brain. I have like eleven on. I have like eleven manuscripts that I have to finish, and I'm like a six book fantasy series is part of them. I'm like I, I don't have time to write all of this. I mean, I, I love. I, I have devoured everything you've written. It, it fills my soul in a way that just. It brings me joy and happiness. And when I saw, and like, it, it challenges me and quest- it makes me question things that I can't understand from my own perspective and lens. And I've learned so much and I really appreciate that from your work. And Thank you. of course, absolutely. I mean, I am, I think Toni Morrison was my creative awakening and the energy, like her energy, I can feel just, I, which I hope is a compliment, but I can feel some of what she always kind of infused in what you write. And that is absolutely <laughs> a compliment and I will very much take it. <laughs> well, thank you. I, you know, I, I want to make sure I'm giving, you know, voices, you know, just truly their moment to shine. And when I saw that your next title was a, a romance title, I thought, you know what, I am picking this up no matter what. And I, I, the, that same energy is still there. Like this reads like Toni Morrison, this reads like Zora Neale Hurston, um, two, of, two of my favorites and two of my biggest influences in how mm-hmm. I judge just about all, anything I would call literature. And no matter how you want to say that this is just commercial romance, it is still like literature. It, it, is, it is powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I was talking to a writer friend about it because Mm -hmm. I was going for just writing a simple romance (laughs) and then Atria released the galleys, what, seven months before publication and Mm -hmm. Goodreads like exploded and I was reading it and I was even talking to my friends. Like my sister hates Faye, like (laughs) is so irritated by her, like finds her so annoying. Mm -hmm. Um, And people were having very strong reactions to the book. And I kept like looking through all of it and I was so surprised. So I talked to a writer friend and I was like, what's going on? I, I thought I just wrote like, you know, a, a romance novel that was clear cut. And nope. she, she laughed at me. Well, first of all, she laughed in my face. Um, and then Love she that. said, well, <laughs> she said, you can't help but to write complex characters. Absolutely. So even if you think the story is straightforward, the characters are not. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where it's going to end up being polarizing. She was like, your work is going to be polarizing no matter how you try to simplify it because this, this is simply how you write. Um, and, I, and I do see what she means when I look back at the book and I see how much, you know, mm-hmm. it's like I had, this, I had this outline of 
the simple, you know, girl meets boy meets boy's dad story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the actual, the actual like story layer about the grief and about the hearts of people and all of that just kept showing up in the book, whether I liked it or not. Mm -hmm. um, and I had to, you know, do it justice and give it space and really find or really examine how this love story was also one about healing, was also this, you know, spiritual connection between two people who feel so fundamentally alone in right. the world. And, you know, and I wanted, I liked the, there's a tension, I think, in, in readers kind of hearing about the superficial story, you know, mm -hmm. oh, she meets his dad and every, like most people are like, oh, that's not okay. I mean, people like me are like, oh, that's fun. I'm here for right. it. But there are a lot of people who are like, that's not okay. Um, and then, you know, they read the book and then you see why it was worth it to them, you know? Yeah, and if there's absolutely. any conversion that I wanted to happen is to convert readers where, you know, you may start off thinking, oh, really? And mm -hmm. then you're like, oh, well, you know, now I'm sympathetic. You know, now I get it. I understand why they're doing this. Because I think that's, that's real. You know, if I'm mm -hmm. writing a love story, I want the love to feel real. I want the choices that people are making to be, to have that sense of, uh, I don't really know what the word is, but just these choices that Alim and Faye are making where they're like, yes, we know that this is going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. We know that we are learning each other, but we've been through these, our respective histories, and they've mm -hmm. brought us to the point where we're willing to pay the cost for a Absolutely. chance at something, not even a certainty, not even a reassurance. There's no guarantee, mm -hmm. but just the chance of it, like just the chance. It's a book about like a chance at love more so than about love itself, really. Right. It, it really is about the hope that the choices they're making and the actions they're carrying out do have a payoff in the end that benefits both of them in the relationship. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, you you really talked about the, the love side of things, but just like the, the locations or characters, Faye's grief is also a character. And I, I feel like you capture and discuss grief in a way that I don't see very often. I feel like most authors kind of shy away from being so direct about grieving sometimes. Uh, like when you call out and sorry, I'm going to quote you again. Uh, everyone said <laughs> it's what he would have wanted, but she was fairly sure he would have wanted to live. And like, you know, many people try to hint at that, but you you call that out. And I think to go back to your point of, of your sister saying like, hated Faye at the beginning or just kind of like that energy of this is the character that you're not sympathetic with once her grief is introduced you can change your perspective and once Faye meets you know kind of everyone that leads her up to the father that is when you're like yep nope this is a journey I needed to go on but what what kind of gave you the the strength of perspective to write grief in this way 
It's something that I write a lot, I'm realizing. You know, The Death of Vivek Audrey is entirely a book about grief. And interestingly, there's like death in this title as well. And I was just like, okay, so death and grief uh, <laughs> are things that, you know, that tend to, that tend to show up in my work. Um, I think it's, I think honestly, it's a function of how much this world sucks. <laughs> especially right now and, <laughs> and how much you know grief we're processing or some people are not processing but how much grief is constantly present mm-hmm. um, in multiple directions especially as you know especially for marginalized people and in my work I think to let the characters be able to live through the grief um, speaks to, I think, how difficult it is to try and find a point to going on, like in this world, um, to find a purpose in living. Because one of the things I say that's perhaps a little morbid, but I think it's true, mm-hmm. is that most people are functioning by shutting out a large part of the pain that exists in the world because you can't function mm-hmm. otherwise. Like if you actually opened up your mind and your senses and your heart and your spirit to how many people are suffering Mm -hmm. at the same time on a global scale, it would absolutely crush you, you know? So I think people are surviving by shutting down Mm -hmm. or shutting out large parts of it and they're surviving by choosing well okay i only have capacity to care about Mm. you know this little circle like you draw a little circle around yourself you're like i only have capacity to care about this because there are too many things um and if you felt all that pain and if you felt all that suffering you wouldn't be able to live um and for me it's been it's very hard to you know shut out everything um Mm -hmm. and i think even just even within whatever little circles we draw when you're somebody who you know the world does not want to be alive you feel that very strongly you know you feel you see it in like the legislation that's happening now where it's like you know people don't want trans people to exist right um and when you're a trans person living in a world that makes it very clear that what they would prefer is for you to die there's a lot of grief in that, you know, there's a lot of grief in watching people turn away from pain and suffering because either like to say they can't cope with it is honestly like the generous right. reasoning for, I think a lot. Yeah. To. For a yeah. lot of people, it's like, they don't want to, or they just, you know, they don't care. Right. Um, and in the books, I think the, it's a way to process grief. Yeah, it's like an outlet for the grief. It's like, okay, well, here's the grief. You know, mm-hmm. here it is on the page because if you're metabolizing all of this pain in the world or you're, you know, dealing with the fact that it's difficult to be alive, it's like, where do you find a reason to continue? Or where do you find a reason to, to live? And people can say, oh, you know, there's beauty in the world, but in my opinion, all the beauty in the world cannot balance the scales for even like one child suffering atrociously. 
And like the beauty does not balance the scales. You can only use the beauty to live if you're shutting out Mm -hmm. the pain and the suffering. But the beauty is also necessary. So in both in Vivek and in Fool of Death, you kind of see people trying to figure that out. I think my books come with more questions than answers. Mm -hmm. I don't really have solutions. Um, but I do think that we can ask the questions together. And in full of that, you can see Faye asking those questions, you know, in all this grief, in the wake of all this death, in with the survivor's guilt that mm-hmm. I think a lot of people can also relate to in various forms. How do you find something to hold on to? How do you Absolutely. find a way to feel alive again? And the grief never really leaves you, but I think in figuring out that balance, it can also help some of us figure out a balance to getting through this, you know, dystopia that we're stuck in. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I love that. That is such a beautiful way to look at how we have to survive and, and, and thinking of grief as, as kind of like, right, someone that you have to walk hand in hand with uh, just to kind of keep our world moving. I also love the the fact that your books are written without all the answers, that there are questions left to be answered because I, I love the space that we're creating today where there are places for conversation online. There are opportunities to say, how did you feel about this? What did you take from this? What do you think this means more so than ever that conversations can happen globally and that authors like yourself can or have an easier opportunity to be involved in those conversations as well. Yeah, thank you. Well, I will start to wind down our time together. And I tend to like to do that with uh, more of my silly, goofy, lighthearted questions. Uh, Ah, yes. (laughs) Nothing too off the wall, but um, to kind of start to walk away from your your writing and your craft, what do you like to have handy when you write? What is the music playing? What are the drinks being drank? What are the snacks in the in the desk drawer? Um, silence. First okay. of all, it's like silence. Oh, this is going to sound so like <laughs> what's the word ascetic? I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Like monk-like silence and yes. water. <laughs> silence and water. Okay. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> You, you got to hydrate the body. Do you keep any yep. snacks handy for, for that time? Um, not particularly. Like I do, okay. I only write at home. Okay. Like I never write in cafes or anything mm-hmm. because they're loud and, and you can't wear pajamas. And I just don't, <laughs> I just don't see the point. <laughs> I don't see the point in getting dressed up. And then you have to commute to wherever you're going. And then you mm-hmm. have to pack up and commutes back when you could just write at home and well Absolutely. I can just write at home and just you know put it aside and turn on a baking show on Netflix that leads perfectly into my next question what are you binging currently um I'm currently binging called the midwife Ooh, on okay. Netflix, which is about like nurses and nuns in London's East End in like the 1950s and 60s yes it's very wholesome surprisingly like I was gonna say it's like a PBS special (laughs) (laughs) it's from the BBC I think it's very wholesome 
everything turns out fine in the end, which is exactly the kind of television I need. And then I'm also watching Abbott's Elementary by Quinta oh, Brunson I when love it comes Quinta. out every week, which yep. is again wholesomeness. We need it wholesome in in the best way and I live every time one of the clips comes up on my TikTok for you page because I already laughed at it once this week but I'll happily laugh again (laughs) (laughs) exactly it's you can watch it endless times I think you really can I've also I've been enjoying a weekly grand crew because I'm a big Nicole Byer fan Uh, it's a lot of fun it's a it's a beautiful cast and they're friends who you know kind of spend a lot of time at the winery and they're they're just kind of connecting their story and their experiences oh that's lovely I'll look that up I'm also planning to start watching um Lizzo's Big Girls um because I mean I love me any kind of dance audition show I'm like (laughs) yes you got me. <laughs> I mean, Lizzo will always get me. If she says, be here, I'll show up. But <laughs> right. I, I want to see what her process is to be like, okay, you can dance with me. Because having seen her live, the energy's always right. <laughs> Ooh, seen her live? Nice. I know. Right before the pandemic. Like the, the one yeah. good thing. <laughs> Just slid that in before the world went to hell. Right before it. And what a way to go. I could still watch the videos on my phone as I was sad about not leaving the house. (laughs) Aww. So um, just kind of two final bits here. Uh, What are you reading currently? I'm currently reading Spirits Abroad, Mm -hmm. which is a short story collection by Malaysian fantasy author Zen Cho. Um, She's one of my absolute favorite authors like I will read any and everything she writes um and she's written quite a good chunk of things it's one of my I love when my favorite authors just like keep writing and yes sometimes I wish they would write I'm like write endless things in the same universe like give me like Terry Pratchett levels yes. of books because I will read all 40 to 70 of them Yes. Give me a whole Discworld collection of your yes. world itself, please. I Give me the MCU of literature. I'm ready for it. That's exactly all I want in life. I can just live in that world and never come out. But I will also be adding that book to my, uh, my to-be-read list in Libby because... Uh, sounds fantastic and I'm a sucker for a short story as well because you get to meet a lot of people that way so Mm -hmm. we'll be doing that um before I let you go is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you made a fool of death with your beauty oh that's a really good question um I don't I don't think so you know I think the I think everything we've talked about you Mm -hmm. know kind of covers it but honestly with the books I'm I'm always more interested in what the reader finds in the book themselves, okay. like what they, you know, what they took away from it. So I love when readers talk about the book. I'm like, by all means, please share your thoughts and feelings. Like you can hate the characters. That's fine. My own sister does. <laughs> and, we're, and I haven't disowned her yet. So <laughs> for now, <laughs> yeah, I think that's for now. I think that's my favorite part. You know, the work is a conversation with readers um and I'm just like what did y'all get from it what like what did you love or hate I love that and I I love hearing that because 
until I started doing this podcast, my biggest wish was always to talk to authors, to talk to the people whose books I read and go, why, why did you do this? And I love that that space just exists for everyone now. Yes. So aside from Goodreads, uh, where can our friends find you online? Do you want to call out your socials just so people can follow you and check out what you've got going on? Sure. I'm on, I have the same handle on all social media, which makes it pretty easy. It's A-Z, which are my initials, and then M-A-Z, my last name. Um, Instagram, feel free to tag me in pictures of things. I will post them on my stories because it makes me very happy. I'm on Twitter. I'm also on TikTok. And that is my new favorite, like wholesome platform. Mm-hmm. It's really like a lot of like recipe videos at this point. <laughs> Not of me, but the ones I watch. But I am on TikTok. Um, I do make videos, and sometimes my cat Goose is in them. Oh well, hello to Goose. I'll look forward. To, I now I'm like, I guess I got to go run and spend some time this afternoon on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just wait until your For You page becomes a whole amalgam of everything you like and uh, be scared because that algorithm seems to know, mine at least knows me way too well. (laughs) Yes, definitely. It's a little creepy. Well, Akwike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. And everyone remember, You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty comes out May 24th from Atria Books. Thank you so much for listening today and happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.